This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Hello and welcome to our audience, our friends joining us here today. You've landed in the Decentralized Club here on Clubhouse, or for some of you, you've landed on the Decentralized Podcast on your favorite platform. For those of you here with us live, we do gather here every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, to cover a wide range of topics related to decentralizing research and improving access to research participation around the world. As you know, our topics here are vast and we cover from technical considerations around interoperability and data flow to human factors around diversity and experience, uh, straight through to policy and other governmental considerations. Uh, Just the other week, we had a fabulous conversation around rural and frontier medicine and the opportunities for decentralizing research to improve access for those communities. Um, So, If those topics are of interest to you, fortunately, there's a way for you to listen to all of those because if you're a a podcast listener on Spotify or whatever your favorite platform, you'll find our episode uh, and even more constantly get there. And if you're here with us on Clubhouse, uh, I think our content library on the Decentralized Trials Club goes back even further. I think there's probably around two years of content that we've stacked up over there. To follow either, if you're here on Clubhouse, just hit that decentralized trials uh, words at the top left of your screen. You can hit that and and follow or join the club and access all of our replays. And obviously, if you're there on one of those other podcast platforms, just hit subscribe and you'll stay current and informed. Amir, did I cover everything? What did I miss? I, I think I got it. I think, Jane, I've, I've done this now a couple of times that I, I think I finally have it. You absolutely do always. You're ready. I'm ready. All right. This is not a drill. Hey, one last listener note before we get things started. Um, there are folks here, if you're live in Clubhouse with us, that share your interest in today's topic. So be sure to not just enjoy the conversation with those of you that raise your hand and join us here on stage, but scroll through the room and see who else is is joining you here today. Maybe give them a follow on LinkedIn or other social platforms. They could be an ally that helps you to solve that next challenge that you're working on. 
We're going to play our usual format here today. We're going to spend about the first half hour with our guests this week talking about this week's topic. And then we're going to open up the room and look and listen for your feedback, your questions, your ideas. So make sure if you're joining us live, you're queuing those up in your mind and we'll get ready to jump in together. Uh, today's topic, Jane, is going to hit on a whole mashup of buzzwords and three-letter acronyms of RWD and DCT. Uh, Jane, why are you excited about this week's topic? Well, because I think that this intersection is really about access and building trust with patients. And, and I'm eager to hear how Matt would unpack those elements in this discussion today. Well, let's answer question number one, who is Matt? So for those of you that haven't had the pleasure, Matt, do us a favor and introduce or reintroduce yourself for folks in the audience. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Craig. And uh, uh, super excited to be here. Thanks, Jane uh, and, and Amir, great to reconnect. Um, uh, yeah, so a little bit on myself. Um, I am very passionate about the real world, uh, the real world space categorically, uh, the data, evidence generation, all of those things. Uh, in fact, I'm one of the uh, co-hosts of Real World Wednesday. My uh, co-moderator, Aaron Kamau, will be here ideally as soon as he gets off the airplane. Um, and, uh, and we'll launch into his background as well. But uh, I come from about 25 plus years of experience in the life science arena. I sort of grew up in the CRO world. And basically I was one of those people in college that really didn't know what they wanted to do. Uh, was getting a degree and like physiology and studying biochemistry and passionate about science, but also very interested in business. And I kind of found my niche in uh, an academic medical center where I, I got to experience clinical research for the first time with patients and basically became a clinical research coordinator. I went on to manage a couple of uh, clinical research sites and then found my, my real uh, foray into the, the CRO world and uh, eventually uh, landed at uh, Quintiles, Legacy Quintiles, which is where I got to meet many, many people throughout my career and, and, and good friends with many of them. Amir is a shining example of, of uh, one of my former colleagues and, and current friends. And um, Quintiles was one of those organizations where it was growing. It was kind of this golden era of the CRO. And uh, I was able to do many different things. And I basically became a corporate intrapreneur, setting up different business opportunities, uh, a, a focus in business development and kind of eclipsing operations. And along the way, I, I was invited to join the board of an electronic data capture company. And for me, while being fully employed at Quintiles and having this uh, board role in a startup, it was really exciting to just see the impact that data and electronic data and granted it was you know study data but it was this this whole ecosystem of of accelerating research and just a few years before that having been surrounded by stacks of three ring binders in cramped offices at a clinical research site you know this was refreshing for me and it really became and and, and uh, served as the foundation of my passion to um, really delve more into data, just categorically its use, even before it was known as real world data. And I was able to pivot the career into the Quintiles IT organization. It was there that I um, 
uh, eventually uh, took some some leadership over the real world data assets for the company and and actually was the founder of a strategic partnership between Quintiles and IMS Health that went on to seed the merger of the company. Now there was a lot of people involved in that. It uh, was you know great to be on the, the the tip of the spear, so to speak, to have um, uh, the companies come together and, and form IQVIA as we know it today. Um, but my passion for real world data has been uh, steadfast. And even though I had another uh, CRO experience after IQVIA, was at Cineas for a, a short period of time, um, my passion is helping with the connectivity of real world data uh, suppliers and companies, life science companies, med tech across the board that are the consumers of that data and looking at all of the litany of use cases and the wonderful world, this ecosystem that we're in, of how we can accelerate and time cycle compress research through a better understanding of the real world of healthcare and the application to research use cases. So it's a little bit, little bit on me. Uh, I don't know if there's other specific questions, but uh, happy to address those. And thrilled to be joined by Aaron Kamau, who's obviously just gotten off the plane. He can share a bit of his background. I'm going to uh, I'm going to stall for Aaron as I'm not sure if he's found a quiet space yet and was just getting a jump start there. But Aaron, okay. if and when you're ready, feel free to come off mute and we'll we'll bounce over to you for sure. But Matt, uh, while Aaron is getting settled in, you know, you you uh, you set up really well a little of where you're operating today at this intersection of this vast ecosystem of organizations either with access to data or helping to create connections to data um, and all of these use cases that are out there. I imagine that for those that say are in pharma working on use cases, let's say around clinical trials and opportunities for using real world data in trials, there's, there's an interesting gap there in terms of how folks can understand the fit for purpose, the appropriateness of any given data set to be right for a given use case. Did I articulate that problem well, or did I miss that? No, you're spot on, Craig, because you know that is one of the things that uh, Aaron and I have really focused in our respective consulting practices on that fit for purpose. Because for the last few years, I will have engagements with life science companies, and it sort of starts with, you know, we have a protocol, uh, we, we want to either weave in real world data, we're going to use this for decision making, it's going to help shape some you know, cohort or other aspect of the design, and we're not quite sure how to approach that. And that fit for purpose is so incredibly important because, well, for obvious reasons, you need great precision and accuracy in the uh, electronic records, uh, the, the, the substance of the real world data, to support the use case. And without a level of precision and accuracy in doing that, without that fit for purpose, you're, you know, there's a lot of time that's wasted. There's uh, uh, a lot of guesswork that goes into it. And, and that's something that Aaron and I have really been focusing on and, and some of our uh, uh, technical friends and uh, advisors in really trying to champion ways that we can improve that fit for purpose process. I'm sure Aaron's going to touch on that too, as as he gives some of his background. It's a critically important area. 
for the audience, is it safe to say that real-world data is any data that's not from a clinical trial, or is there a better uh, definition that you like just to level set with uh, with the audience today? Yeah, that's a great question, Craig, because real-world data, uh, you know, if you ask the FDA, they do have a, a more specific definition. And I think Aaron and I are both of the mindset that real-world data is, it's, it's very encompassing. And it, it doesn't necessarily have to be just the healthcare data, because things like consumer behavior data, uh, social determinants, uh, all of those things comprise the, the ecosystem of data around individual patients. And uh, the more that we can understand that, the more that we can weave in uh, things like weather data and how that might have an impact in, say, an asthma clinical trial or, you know, a patient's response to a therapeutic. Um, it's it, it's just amazing to think about how much information is accessible and the impact that that could have in framing uh, an understanding of the research um, and, and looking at follow-on research questions and opportunities as well. So. I, I tend to default to a broader definition. Uh, I know that Aaron does. We've talked about that a lot. Um, it's true. Real world is anything, at least in the healthcare space, that isn't a clinical trial. But the irony is that clinical trial data, when it's being used for a purpose other than the clinical trial, the randomized controlled trial that it was uh, originally developed for, it can become a component of real world data. So there's a gray area there as well, and I, I don't intend that to be confusing, but um, you know, the body of data that's accessible from, from just about anywhere can become a component of what we know as real-world data. You know, I, uh, I, we keep talking about this guy, Aaron, and uh, <laughs> I think it's probably a good time to uh, let him introduce himself. Uh, Aaron, who are you? <laughs> Thank you so much, and no, I appreciate it, and, and thanks for everyone with the flexibility with my traveling. I know you've uh, referenced that as well. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Aaron Kamau. I'm a physician trained in biomedical informatics and public health. Um, left my clinical career very early in my residency program. I was actually going into radiology residency at the time and uh, realized how much more interested and passionate I was about the medical informatics side of healthcare. Frankly, 2006, I thought that that meant electronic health records. And so I started off my informatics career in, an EH, in the EHR space as I managed a content engineering team at an EHR company, which, you know, you can kind of broadly think of it as a team that sat between um, kind of our agile software development side of the EHR product and the clinical workflows of our clinicians who used an EHR product and then the kind of data management a bit behind the scenes. For example, we were the team that decided, you know, how much data was required to be structured versus allowed to be narrative um, of the structured data, what codings can include use or not. And, you know, I bring that up intentionally because when we talk about real world data, of course, we are often the recipients of using that data, however it's archived and collected and so forth down uh, upstream and kind of had a chance to be part of that in an EHR company. And then in 2008, I was recruited to Roche and I was the head of healthcare data strategy, which is the time I met Greg and Jane during the time that Roche and Genentech merged together. And frankly, I'll kind of summarize from 2008 forward, which is my life has been everything real world data and real world evidence. And I've had the opportunity to participate in many of the different use cases around how we 
um, are trying to leverage mobile data to advance drug development and clinical research in the life sciences industry. And I've had an opportunity to do that in pharma, biotech. Um, I started my own company in 2011, where we worked on leveraging the EHR data behind the firewall of healthcare systems to support these kinds of activities. Uh, and then at ParkSelf for a few years, building out their global data science function before, as Matt already alluded to, um, having my own consultancy advisory business in this space as uh, Matt and I are now kind of working together to launch a new business around exactly some of these topics. Like how do we leverage global data to really be the most effective at generating real world evidence? Um, and I guess I heard the last question, so I'll kind of, if I can add my own two cents to the definition of global data, I agree completely with the way Matt talked about that. Rural data kind of not only being healthcare related data that is representative of the real world setting, or so then therefore not kind of the clinical trial setting per se. Um, but really, I think we're really expanding our ideas of what kind of data we might use within these real world data use cases, even beyond healthcare data. Uh, and then when I think about it, I also simplify the idea of real world evidence as being whenever we apply the appropriate analysis to reliable real-world data, we can generate meaningful real-world evidence. And that can be used for a whole lot of things, whether decision-making around health outcomes or epidemiology of patient populations, or maybe we're using that real-world evidence to drive things like clinical trial operations activities or design of new studies, um, retrospective or prospective, et cetera. Um, I think Matt and I both really take a broader perspective on both definitions of RWD and RWE. Well, it is fabulous to have you both here. I did drop a link at the top for those here on Clubhouse. Be sure to give a follow over to the RWD and RWE podcast and the uh, the, the Real World Wednesdays program. Um, you know, it's uh, these are these are some great shows to fill your week. Uh, you, we've got your Wednesdays covered. We've got your Fridays covered. Um, and now today we have a great opportunity for some convergence. Amir, I'm sure you have a bunch of questions on your mind. And Jane, I, I, for me, a lot of the questions are swirling about this, this intersection. We hear a lot about RWD and we hear a lot of buzz about DCT and decentralized trials. And I'm certainly really curious about the convergence of these worlds. Amir? Sure. What I would say is I think both Matt and Aaron are very uh, sort of familiar and experienced with our world of clinical trials. So I, I think they can probably come up with their own questions of what they think we should know. I think today I'm very interested in just, um, you know, uh, leveraging the expertise that Matt and Aaron have, because I think, frankly, just like anything else, there's a lot of silos in our world. So I think many clinical development people are very heads down on clinical trials and know that uh, RWD and RWE exist, but I'm not sure the level of understanding necessarily for everyone. So I think just uh, understanding the basics and how it goes. As um, Aaron and Matt were talking, I was thinking, so would you say, uh, this isn't a perfect analogy, but would you say clinical trials is like having a black and white TV and adding RWD and RWE is like kind of turning on color in a 3D interface? I, I love that, Amir. Uh, in, in many ways, that's that's absolutely true. Uh, because and and you know, to the credit of a well-designed randomized controlled trial, it it really is intended to be a very homogeneous patient population, and that the color that can come about as a, a way of better understanding those patients 
or to follow those patients over a longer period of time. That starts to come about from the, the real world data that's collected either in the context of the trial as part of an enrichment of the trial data set or as data that's accessible longitudinally after the fact as part of an extension or other program. So uh, I absolutely, and I, I love the metaphor. Yeah, I would add to that as well. I think that, you know, sometimes um, I'll use a couple of terms, I guess. Uh, we talk about efficacy versus effectiveness. The idea that, you know, we run clinical trials to truly have a nice, well-controlled environment to test the efficacy of our drugs and the safety of our, our expand it to all medical advancements. Um, and yet we also know, right, we've intentionally introduced the selection bias in the context of our inclusion and exclusion criteria. And again, that's intentional, nothing wrong with that. But we also then need to kind of carry that forward and say, all right, well, what do our patient populations, what do people look like in the real world? What is care-like as haphazard or inconsistent as it is? Um, comorbidities or other kind of health-related and even non-health-related influences that impact our status of health in our lives. And therefore, then, how would these medical advances impact patients in that real-world setting? And so the idea of kind of providing a more comprehensive view around the patient uh, is certainly a big one. And then, therefore, kind of assessing the effectiveness of the drug in the real-world or medical advancement in a real-world setting versus the efficacy in a um, clinical trial setting. We uh, And thanks for uh, the plug on uh, RWE and the RWE Club. We had a speaker just a few weeks ago, Dr. Jack West, who is a practicing oncologist and he talks about this very nature that when he has a patient in front of him that patient rarely fits the exact inclusion exclusion criteria of the clinical trials and yet he still has to make a decision around that patient and so he's going to use that clinical trial evidence and try to layer on whatever real world evidence is out there so that then he can make the best decision with his patient that they can decide what is the best course of action in that individual's you know, situation. And so um, I think of rural data as both that kind of comprehensive view and try to add more flavor around how we understand our medical advances and the patients who are receiving them, as well as characterize kind of real world settings in general and just kind of understand how we all as people engage with the healthcare systems we're within. Jane, the pragmatic innovator. I know I have a bunch of questions on my mind for uh, for these two RWD experts. What are some of the questions swirling on your mind right now? Okay, I'm going to get pragmatic. So, Matt and Aaron, if you were in a situation where you were starting to work with a clinical development team, how would you advise them to start thinking about real world data use and what steps would you start with? And I know it's a little down in the rabbit hole, but is this, I guess, is this a strategy that takes a bunch of planning or is this something you can do on the fly and, and what's the best way to begin? Well, Jane, let me pose a question back to you just for clarification. This uh, clinical development team, are they at the point they're conceptualizing a protocol or do they have a protocol already in mind or have they already created one? <laughs> mm, why don't we go with any of those? Like maybe it's a different answer depending on the setting. Well, it kind of is because in many ways, 
just in terms of what the clinical development program is is intended to do, you know, the phase of, uh, of, of the study, all of those things are considerations. But at the highest level, it's really better understanding and characterizing the patient population. And that directly contributes to many of the design elements that could be comorbid conditions or medications that the patients might be taking. And so that, that patient journey and being able to look back retrospectively at the accessible uh, data uh, can help inform many of those decisions. Um, you know, I think it's, it's really important to consider the uh, optimization of the patient population as much as possible. And, and a lot of that comes through understanding. I, I think many in the audience will have, will be able to relate to this where they have been a, a, a party to clinical research. Maybe they're conducting a study, maybe they're on the CRO side or the pharma side and the protocol just wasn't recruiting patients. So what happens goes back to IRB, it's, it's modified. Uh, there, there's, there's changes that are made to try to um, improve the inclusion-exclusion criteria from a, a, a patient perspective. And uh, invariably what happens is, you know, sometimes that can have minor improvements. Sometimes it doesn't really impact the enrollment that much. And you have to think, had the study been more thoroughly designed and the cohorts more fully understood in advance, what sort of impact would that have? And that's, that's what this ubiquity of data that we have available today, um, that is the type of difference that it, it can make. This is just one example. There's many others that we'll get into here in just a few minutes. But um, you know, I think that that is a shining example of just better understanding and characterizing the patient population at large. Aaron, I'll turn to you for your thoughts too. Yeah, no, I agree with all of that. And you know, obviously also your initial question is, go back to Jane around the situation of the clinical trials and how teams find themselves in. Um, you know, we, we've kind of put together a framework, if you will, of around kind of different use cases or uses of rural data. And what I would say is there's some of them that fall into the category of kind of design and planning of the study. And I know you alluded to that as well, um, Matt. So how we might leverage rural data to understand the patient populations that we intend to, you know, target and include in our trials. Uh, understand a little bit about how they engage healthcare and if there's anything in our trial that we need to incorporate just on how we're going to include those patients and 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 certainly diversity inclusiveness becomes a key part of that that we can use rural data to help guide that some of the use cases are around clinical trial operations activities themselves so site identification patient recruitment strategies and so forth and as you just mentioned Matt and then there's kind of this newer ish, let's say five, six years now, but still fairly new or novel uses of rural data around the actual collection of data in parallel to um, or following on a clinical trial. So things like um, the potential to have an external control arm where we might be running a trial where, um, you know, it might be unethical or we might have some really good reasons why a randomized control arm isn't appropriate. And therefore, we might look to rural data as a potential source of that. And there are some use cases now where we're looking at tokenization technology, tokenized patients at the time of enrollment, meaning generate a token that we can use to link back to other de-identified rural data sources. And there are a whole handful of use cases there, like 
long-term follow-up on studies after the trial's done, following patients' kind of virtual enrolled data, or even data collection in real time during the trial to supplement the data you're collecting in your trials and maybe reduce some of the site visits or burden on the sites and patients in the trial, um, or even you know, trying to understand loss of follow-up when we have loss of follow-up of patients in trials, maybe there's evidence in the verbal data can explain to us, you know, why there's a loss of follow-up and what might be occurring to the patient. So there are a number of ways from early design through the early clinical operations through even the data collection itself that you might use for your trial where verbal data could play a role. And just to, to kind of add on that, I think it's a really important consideration to plan accordingly, and a lot of preparation is involved. And Aaron and I both have experiences working with life science companies where there was this, this passion for embracing the use of real-world data that, that almost got too extreme. You know, we're going to collect everything, and that becomes unwieldy and also very expensive um, and really changes the, the dynamic of the study. And so there has to be a very purposeful discussion around exactly what data is needed and the impact that that's going to have on the endpoints. So this might be too basic a question, forgive me, but Matt, you mentioned there are a plethora of data sources. What, what the heck are you talking about? What kind of data and how might you find it if you were new to the field? Great question, Jane, and something that uh, um, you know many have uh, heard of, or, or perhaps even worked with claims data themselves. I, uh, in one of my roles, was working with claims data back in the year two thousand, um, and you know it is a valuable tool. It's administrative data, so it can give you some insights around patients and the care that they're receiving, um, but. It, it has limitations and strengths and weaknesses. And I think that as we talk about real world data, that's a really important consideration. Every type of data has strengths and weaknesses. And I, I kind of made up an adage around that, that um, you know, all data has value, it really does, but not all data is valuable to address certain use cases or even from the data contributor side, you know, if they're trying to uh, provide data um, to, to support research, they may not really drive much value from very limited data sets. And sometimes claims falls into that category. But, um, you know, beyond claims are the clinical data sets like electronic health records and many use cases there. It's obviously a combination of structured and unstructured data. Unstructured being things like physician's narrative, where they're actually uh, 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 former term dictation, <laughs> where they would actually uh, uh, put uh, unstructured commentary about the patient encounter into the record. And of course, all of the structured fields together comprise that, as well as all the lab data, uh, in some cases, imaging data and other parameters that are accessible through the health record of the patient. And there's extensions of that, pathology data, genomics, many other types of data can be incorporated, as we said at the outset of, of the episode today. You know, many of the other elements that are outside the classic clinical record can still be part of the RWD spectrum. Um, but those are probably the most shiny examples. And just to come back to imaging data for a moment, I, I like to think of imaging data as the data that keeps on giving because while we might have a static radiology report 
The image is something that can be further interrogated over time as technologies improve to, to delve further into the, the images. Um, you know, I think that's an, a really important and growing area of focus. So something that I'm passionate about as well. We are, oh, Aaron, I'm oh, just going to, oh, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead, Aaron. Sorry, I was going to address this also from Jane's question in the chat, including wearables. I think when we leverage devices, even in our daily lives, they represent an aspect of our healthcare and wellness in a real world setting. And so, yeah, even that data could be used if available and harnessed. I guess there's still a bit of that there that is not necessarily data that's available or easily accessible today, but they all are data that can represent, you know, our health status and our well-being and our health care in the real world setting. Thanks so much, Aaron. Thanks, Matt. Rob knows what's coming up next. Rob Wilson, uh, uh, kudos to you for being first at hitting that hand-raising button even before I got these words out of my mouth. We are at a point for those joining us live that will open up the room. So if you're here live with us on Clubhouse, uh, feel free to take advantage of that hand-raising icon. We'll welcome you to the stage to hear your thoughts, questions, experiences. If you're listening through the podcast, the Decentralized Podcast, remember every Friday 12 to 1 is your opportunity to join us live and bring your voice into these conversations, just like Rob Wilson. This week, our uh, guests include Matt Veach and Aaron Kamau, fabulous hosts of Real World Wednesday, another great clubhouse uh, meetup spot. Uh, recurring every week with fabulous content, exploring real-world data and real-world evidence with some amazing guests. This week, we're doing a little bit of a mashup and fortunate to have them both here with us as we talk about this intersection of real-world data in clinical trials and even more specifically, real-world data in decentralized trials. Where we just left off, Aaron was making that connection that Jane raised in the chat around connected devices and wearables as a source of real-world data, which certainly comes up quite a bit when we're thinking about decentralizing research. And something tells me our first uh, guest here on the stage, Rob Wilson, is going to double down on that. Rob, come on off mute, introduce yourself, and share your question or thoughts today. Rob, uh, unmute on the lower right. There we go. There it is. Blind hog found an acorn. Thanks, Craig. It's it's Rob Wilson. I work with the Vivo since now, and prior to that, spent many years at at Actograph, where we were pretty passionate, both companies, and developing digital endpoints from wearable sensors. You know, really to improve the efficiency and the efficacy of of clinical trials and care. And although we've seen a fair uh, amount of increase in the use of those tools and analytics, much of what you all have said before is, is really quite um, on target in terms of the need to be fit for purpose and garbage in, garbage out, and how much data is too much data. Um, and so my question to Matt and Aaron, both who have really uh, great talk and a lot of experience in the trenches of clinical trials is, you know, we do believe that this real world, real world, real world evidence from from wearable sensors can reflect activity and sleep um, impact that is uh, is always present with chronic disease and its intervention. In, in your opinion, in both of your opinions, 
what is it that really holds us back from adopting uh, that in, in more scale, even as exploratory measures, so we can learn how that data set might um, impact and reflect on other data sets like uh, electronic medical records and claims data and and also, you know, genomic data. What what holds us back other than, you know, the evidence, but um, what, what would your advice be to people who want to include that kind of data in their clinical trial protocol? Yeah, Rob, great, great question. And uh, thanks for joining us here on the stage. I uh, really, really appreciate that. Um, and, and really appreciate, you know, champions and pioneers in, uh, uh, in wearable technology and sort of the, the whole digital biomarker uh, as a consideration, because I think that's so critically important. To break down your question, I, I think there is a regulatory component to it, you know, in terms of barriers to adoption. And you have to really target, you know, what is the primary endpoint, secondary endpoints of the trial, and uh, which which of those does the digital biomarker or the wearable data actually uh, contribute to, and what's the validation of that? And I think that's the Achilles heel. It's those validation studies that are, are required. Um, as regulators see that and they see validation, I think there's going to be increasing comfort with uh, actually uh, making regulatory decisions based on that data. And it's still a bit of a, a gray area, but I love the trend of increasing focus on the validation and, and certainly knowing just a little bit about VivoSense. I know that that's something that, uh, you know, in terms of championing um, validations and being able to advance uh, the regulatory considerations, that's a, a, a core component of, of uh, well, I would say everyone that is focused on on the use of uh, wearables and, and digital data. I would second that, of course, and I think to that point, Rob, you brought up specifically, even the we would encourage people to use these devices, even in exploratory endpoints, if you will, in their trials. And frankly, I think there's also an opportunity for the use of them more in observational research studies where they're prospectively done or enrolling patients, but um, sometimes, depending on the study, may have a little more leniency in how you're collecting data and engaging some of these patients in a real-world observational research study, and that I think can also add to the validation nature. And then if I expand it a little bit beyond the use of the data, or the, sorry, the wearables and devices themselves in um, prospective studies, I do think that there is a missed opportunity a little bit still going on in, in per Jane's question in the chat around the data that's being collected by all these devices that people are wearing just every day in the rural settings. Much of that data, as far as I'm aware, not really accessible to researchers yet by the companies that are collecting them. I think there are some kind of exploring some of it, but certainly it's not something that I see in the kind of almost mainstream use of rural data yet. And yet I can't help but wonder the plethora of information out there and how we might be able to start to leverage them in the future as some of these companies and, and patients and people um, maybe can start to kind of drive the adoption and use of that data more in the robot setting as well. And Aaron, maybe this is a good opportunity to separate out real world data use in research can involve identifiable uh, data um, as well as de-identified. And by identifiable, I mean at the very least linked to a consented 
uh, study participant um, as compared with those data sets that may be simply uh, aggregated, de-identified data sets. So I should clarify, I don't mean that a blinded, randomized participant in a research needs to be identifiable by name, but that that data could be linked to them in a privacy-preserving way with their consent um, as compared with other use cases that may involve more aggregated, de-identified data. Is that is that a typical separation in your mind? Yeah, that's a great way to think about it, I think. So there's certainly one level of it, which is there's data that might be collected in a prospective consenting observational real-world evidence study. Uh, phase four studies tend to fall into these categories where we are actively going out there. We're finding sites or decentralized research. And again, a nice overlap with decentralized kind of technologies and research capabilities where we're actively enrolling patients, but the study itself is in nature an observational study and not actively intervening um, in most cases. And that's generating real world data for very specific real world evidence objectives and needs. And then the distinction from that is real world data that's being collected for other primary purposes. Every time we go see a physician or a clinician or go to a hospital or an emergency room, um, every time we engage our doctor's clinics offices and some of that's becoming more and more virtual, there is data being collected about us. Every time our clinicians submit claims to our payers or insurance providers on our behalf, that data is being documented and much of that data is now, especially over the last decade, becoming more and more available. And to your point, aggregated, de-identified, grouped together. And traditionally, we really use that data primarily for understanding large patient populations and cohorts. Let's try to understand all patients who have diabetes and maybe by weight and age and other characteristics and try to understand how they're in, um, involved in healthcare or how they might have different health outcomes based on different therapy areas. Um, but to your point, we're now in the, in the recent years leveraging privacy preserving methods through things like tokens and other kind of linking capabilities where we actually can under consent with patients in observational research or even clinical trials with their permission, link them to data in these aggregated de-identified ways and be able to kind of identify them to a certain level of confidence that we're finding data about them in the real world setting and kind of bring those pieces together. And some people refer to that as trial tokenization. That's kind of a common terminology out there, but it certainly is not, um, there are multiple companies working in this space. And so, uh, yeah, distinguishing kind of real world data that comes from that we're using it for a secondary purpose because the data was collected for a different purpose and then we're using it. So electronic health records or claims data or real world data that we are generating through our own studies that are intentionally observational. That's one distinction. And then certainly the ability to start to link some of these data together. And then once we're engaging Oh, by the way, just a quick reminder, if anyone else out there has questions or perspectives they want to bring to this conversation, hit that hand raising icon if you're here with us live on Clubhouse. Uh, Aaron, Matt, just to double down on that on that thread, when we're talking about the use case of a, an individual patient who is providing consent, they are participating in a prospective 
uh, clinical trial. You mentioned tokenization, um, and we've had our friends from Datavent and Health Verity and other organizations here on uh, TGIF in the past. And we've also had some of these other organizations that are data enabling patients uh, on here with us. We've had surely our friends from uh, Seekster uh, joined us here and on the DTRA circles just the other day. I think uh, friends from Picnic had joined over there. Um, how do we tell these different strategies apart? I think that some folks in drug development are getting a little overwhelmed with the number of tactics that I can deploy to connect a consented participant to their data, HIPAA right of access, leveraging FHIR and other data standards, tokens, which lever am I supposed to pull and when? Is there an answer to that or is there actually just another set of questions to consider? Well, that's a great, great question, Craig. And I, I think that, you know, what we're seeing is the emergence of, of more tools in the toolbox and that that armamentarium of of capabilities is really changing the landscape of, of research which is very exciting but to to the point that that you're really making here which which tool do you take part of that comes with the skill of knowing how to use those tools and you know much like a, let's say carpenter who's got a a large toolbox um you you reach for different tools at different times and I think that, that that knowledge and and wisdom and experience comes about as you're assembling the, the team. So there's a, a technical, a digital, a regulatory overlap with all of these teams that are uh, you know determining how to move forward with a particular research opportunity or study design, and just holistically weaving together the collective expertise that's necessary. And increasingly, that is looking more technical. It's looking at, at uh, expertise in the real-world data, the evidentiary use cases, and having uh, a reduction in, in the siloing function that sometimes happens in life science companies. I'll add a little bit there, and, and certainly, Craig, you're touching on a, I'll call it a thesis that Matt and I have been kind of witnessing firsthand for the last handful of years. We in the life sciences industry in particular are trying to leverage real world data in so many more ways than we even tried or thought of 10 years ago or so. And I think back on some of our early days together where we'd share ideas and so forth when you were at Pfizer and I was at Roche. And, and yet now look at today and we're just trying to do so much more. The number of use cases or the stakeholders that we're sharing this evidence with has become more sophisticated with more requirements around that. I mean, the FDA's final guidance on the use of RWD as submissions for regulatory decision-making just came out a couple of months ago and highlights both that we have stakeholders who want this evidence, but it certainly added a lot more complexity to what we're trying to accomplish. And at the same time, we're seeing a plethora, if you will, of rural data solutions on the market. And that's great from one perspective, as Matt was mentioning earlier, the different kind of rural data types is great that we actually have access or can leverage some of these data that simply weren't available to us 10, 15 years ago, even five years ago. But it also makes it more challenging to navigate this landscape. And I think one area we talk about is fit for purpose. And I would kind of really propose or, or encourage that we get better and better at defining what our purpose is. So, so to your point, again, when 
when you kind of bring up this questions around like, how do we do this? Or even Jane's question earlier, like how would a clinical trial team um, think about using role data? You know, Matt and I tend to take that step back and say, well, what are we trying to accomplish here? And, you know, depending on what we're trying to accomplish, maybe we're trying to optimize some of our clinical operations activities, or maybe we're trying to optimize our data collection methods, or maybe we're trying to optimize on the data we intend to submit to a particular stakeholder, uh, or we're trying to solve a problem around loss of follow up. What exactly is the kind of problem or set of challenges we're trying to um, uh, achieve or overcome using robo data? Then, which use case is the right fit for that? Now we've kind of defined our purpose, and we can use that definition of purpose to then go and assess different data sources on the market. Um, I don't want to sound like it's oversimplifying it. This is challenging, but we have seen you know, firsthand where you can have a lot of success by going through that process and therefore being able to find the data that's most meaningful, most appropriate and fit for the purpose you're trying to achieve. One other thing I'll mention and, and a little plug for scope conference. And I know many of the people in the audience and here on stage go to the scope summit in February. I have no direct relationship with them other than I like to attend and sometimes present, but we actually do have a, uh, a session that will be there where Lucinda Orsini, so former associate chief scientific officer of ISPOR um, uh, Association, will be speaking a bit about this multidisciplinary team need and really kind of talking about how we need to kind of be more effective. And, and she suggests some ways in which we can bring our randomized clinical trial and our real world evidence teams together and work more effectively together. Good calendar note for the uh, months ahead. Thanks for the. Uh... The conference planning note, Aaron, you did though very quickly, and I think you might have done it maybe in one breath. I'll have to check the replay. You rattled off a bunch of awesome use cases for folks to consider for where real world data can be significant, impactful, meaningful when planning, designing, or executing a prospective clinical trial. Um, I wonder if we could maybe just touch on a few of those a little bit further for folks to make sure that that they followed that. I know some of those use cases might have leaned into study design and planning, and some might have been more around the recruitment and screening and eligibility funnel. Some might have been more around um, long-term safety follow-up or even powering external control arms. But among those use cases you just hit on, which ones, Aaron, should we should we double click on a little bit for the audience to make sure that they were uh, keeping up? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, to uh, to add to it, I think I my list or my framework of use cases of verbal data is about twenty seven use cases of which probably half or more are related somehow to clinical trials or or um, let's say prospective studies where we're enrolling patients, um, which is both exciting and challenging as, as Matt was kind of mentioning earlier. And so I totally appreciate how this can feel a little daunting. Um, I look at it as more exciting as in look at some of the opportunities that we can kind of consider. And so, yeah, I break it up into the kind of effectively, I think three categories. One is kind of early design of the study. And so, using real-world data to understand the patient populations better, understand how patient populations, populations engage healthcare, the patient journey to the extent that we can 
you know, see that represented in their health records, um, uh, the kind of care they typically receive, things that might give us better insight into how we might engage those patients in our trials, not just for recruitment, but even after recruitment, what kind of challenges they might be dealing with that we should be aware of. So the early phases of designing our study, including things like our inclusion exclusion criteria and, and you know, getting some level of quantifiable data, how many patients are going to likely meet our eligibility criteria as we kind of stack those on each other. There's the clinical operations activity. So um, how do we find sites where we know they have sufficient patients to meet our needs and also compound that with the normal site uh, evaluations that, that we already have been doing for, for a long time. So we want to make sure they're sites who are research capable and, and so forth. And then we also want to know, do they have the patients that we are uh, going to be looking for? And then how do we engage those patients? And I shouldn't say just sites, of course, when we're talking about decentralized research. How do we identify where the patients are and then leverage whatever tools we can to kind of reach out and identify and, and engage those patients? And uh, robo data can help drive those activities. Then concurrent to our trial, it might drive, we might leverage robo data in our data collection. So, you know, traditionally, when we think about our randomized clinical trials, all of the data we collect on our patients would come from um, the tools that we deploy for our trial. Might be uh, electronic data capture tools, might be wearables and so forth as we start to use devices a bit more. But there are things that we've intentionally deployed into our trial and are having our patients use those tools or our clinicians and sites, et cetera, um, decentralized capabilities, use those tools to collect data. And yet we're now starting to kind of see areas in which we might supplement that data collection with real world data about those same patients. Uh, we mentioned tokenization or patient pre preserving methods of linking the patient in a trial back to real world data sources. And so some of those use cases could include things like a historical background, right? We, we tend to certainly want to understand as our patients enroll in our trials, what their background and medical history is. Um, we ask them a lot of questions directly, but we can also link to the real data and look at their medical records and look at their claims and get a sense of what their medical history was like. Um, we might collect data concurrently with them. So survey real world data to see anytime our, one of our patients gets hospitalized or ends up in an emergency room uh, department and so forth that can trigger to us, hey, there might be an event that occurred there that we should dig into with them. Um, loss to follow up. So patients no longer show up for visits. Could we look at real world data and maybe try to determine where what happened? Maybe they moved to another health system or whatever. Um, uh, or this idea of long-term follow-up. And that's one where I think a lot of sponsors are starting to get interested in. I hear this come up often nowadays, um, saying, okay, when I've completed my two or three-year trial, maybe it's even a shorter trial, a one-year trial, um, I would like to follow some of those health outcomes for another three, four, five years, but I don't want to require those patients to come into the clinic regularly during that long-term follow-up. Could we monitor those health outcomes among those same patients for several years after the trial is completed. Again, under consent with the patient's permission, linking them and then monitoring them virtually in their real world data. Um, maybe weight change over time, maybe A1Cs over time, looking for specific health outcomes like cardiovascular outcomes, et cetera, that we might uh, follow. 
Um, and then you mentioned external control arms, and, and I'll, I'll touch on that because it's an area that's also a very hot topic, but it's also an area where the regulatory agencies have been pretty active. The FDA and both EMA have been pretty active in um, wanting to see sponsors consider that as a solution. Doesn't mean that it's going to be easy, So, I, I, but they've been willing to work with sponsors to figure that out. And that's the idea where we might have a lot of reasons, ethical reasons, et cetera, to um, not randomize patients onto a placebo or a control arm. Um, maybe it's a rare oncology condition and you know has high mortality, high morbidity. So, so anyways, we might consider using robo data as an external control arm to compare our single arm trial against and generate some evidence to understand what the effect of our medical advancement is. I think that was a lot there, so so uh, hopefully it wasn't too <laughs> it much. Good, good, good stuff, so. good stuff, Eric. Uh, hey, I'll, I'm going to just uh, uh, piggyback on to, to um, something that Aaron was saying, and just I want to highlight and call this out because, you know, we're, we're all passionate about decentralized research because we know that that means greater convenience for the patient. Uh, uh, you know, even the background section of the decentralized clinical trials guidance document from May of this year, it highlights the fact that D D DCTs are enhancing convenience, uh, reducing burden on caregivers, um, uh, allowing expanded uh, access to patient populations. And if we start with the DCT first, the other aspect of, of real world data is it can be um, informative of those populations, you start with the DTC, or the, sorry, the decentralized trial, then you, you focus on uh, the data that's going to help better characterize those patients. And so that can be, again, social determinants, really understanding your underrepresented patients, um, uh, uh, the considerations around demography and access to traditional clinical sites. Those are all things that you can use as adjuncts to the initial DCT design. So I, I just wanted to call that out. It really still is about the convenience to the patient, but there are many things that can expand the value of the research through real world data. I'm going to double down there for one second and just talk about the practicality of that in a positive way, Matt, because I'm all on board having lived most of my professional life running oncology trials. Thinking about the long-term follow-up setting in cell and gene therapy and oncology settings, anything we can do to collect the data around long-term safety and efficacy that minimizes patient burden is worth doing. And I feel like this intersection of RWD-DCT is the perfect way to do it. What a great way to wrap things up today with a bunch of like old friends coming back together. Jane and Aaron work together at Genentech. Aaron and I cross paths between Genentech and Pfizer. Amir and Matt work together at Quintiles. And look at the worlds all converging here. Amir, any final words on your part? Yeah, I feel we're just beginning to dig in and I haven't even asked any of my questions. So I just recommend we'll have more sessions with Aaron and Matt, please. I love it. Absolutely, love it too. I, I, I really think we need Thursdays. I, I just feel like what else makes sense <laughs> between Wednesdays and Fridays, but we'll, we'll figure that out for calendars. In the meantime, thank you so much, both Rob for jumping on stage with your question, as well as Matt and Aaron for sharing some time, and all of you for jumping in the conversation today, whether Clubhouse or 
via podcast. We actually have an incredibly busy lineup of guests coming up for the next few weeks, for the next couple of months. So stay tuned, keep watching on LinkedIn, on X slash Twitter, on threads. We'll keep dropping updates uh, for who's coming up that particular week, but it's gonna be busy for the next few weeks and we look forward to seeing you here. Thanks again, everybody. Have a great weekend. Thank you Thanks, so much. Greg. Thanks everyone. Great session. Thanks, Greg. Bye.